lead pastor Kevin Larson will be preaching to us. Uh, very exciting. And so if you'll turn in your Bibles or on your apps with me to Matthew chapter 2. And if you're physically able, would you stand with me? And then I'll read the passage. Y'all follow along. And I'll invite Pastor Kevin up to pray. So, Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13. And I'm reading from the ESV. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word this morning. God, today I pray um, that you'd be with Pastor Kevin, uh, that you'd bless his words to us today, that you would um, bless the time that he spent this week studying and, and writing for us. Um, God, I pray for the congregation as well. I pray that we would receive your word humbly, that we would hear your word and be obedient to it. Um, I pray that we would see who you are, what your kingdom is like. God, will we leave this gathering um, different as a result of what your word has done to us by your spirit? God, we thank you for Jesus, for everything he's done for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Good morning once again. Um, one thing I'll add on to what... Aaron just said as we talk about membership in Kara's intro, we're still in a pretty big need for volunteers to help in Kara's kids. Um, we just have a number of parents um, where it's difficult to have your kids with you in the gathering that want to come. We just need a few more. I believe we need maybe eight more volunteers. So if you're in the process and haven't quite finished, um, we would love to have you help with that. Um, maybe if you're single or a student, you just think, how could I serve this body? That would be the perfect way to, to do it. If you just have a heart for kids, um, car, come to Cara Centro, learn more. Um, reach out to Sarah Pierce, who leads up Cara's kids. But we could use your help, and I think it would be a huge blessing to some of the parents in our congregation. This past Wednesday night, you may have heard, a man somehow managed to scale the Christmas tree outside the News Corp building in downtown Manhattan and set the thing ablaze causing $500,000 in damage. Hard to believe, but that man's act symbolizes what many people in America see as a, quote, war on Christmas, an attempt by some in our nation to burn the holiday to the ground. A recent poll done by Fairleigh Dickinson University found that nearly four in 10 Americans believe politicians are engaged in such a war to destroy the holiday and with it Christianity. To that I say, 
Seriously? Now, I don't have much patience for that kind of talk, honestly. Um, just in case you didn't know, a, a Walmart employee who wishes you happy holidays, that doesn't make you persecuted. You know, you drinking a Vimy latte from Starbucks with a snowflake on the side does not make you a sellout. Jesus isn't sweating if your kid has a, quote, holiday program. The God of the universe isn't worried if our county um, courthouse doesn't have a nativity scene. And just to, to throw another one in there, if you see someone abbreviate our holiday as Xmas, please don't scold them with put Christ back in Christmas. Because that X there isn't blacking out Jesus' name, his title. It's actually the, the Greek letter key, or maybe you've heard Kai, the first letter in Christos, his Greek name. And it's just been an appropriate and, and definitely not an irreverent title for Christ and for the holiday for, for many, many years. But can you imagine the Apostle Paul just shaking his head and, the, and Matthew the disciple, you know, throwing up his hands? He'd probably say, War on Christmas? I'll show you a war on Christmas. And he'd point us to the verses, I think, here in this gospel. Here in Matthew 2, verses 13 through 18, that's what we see. We don't see vandalism to a nativity scene. We see an actual attempt on the life of the baby Jesus. And at the same time, we so, see so clearly the zeal and strength of our Father to defend Christ, His Son. God protects and preserves His Son, and with it, our salvation. Now, in our time together this morning, I want to unpack that statement. I'll, I'll focus on that big idea in three ways. We'll first see how God threatens our kingdoms. Second, we'll look at how our Lord preserves our King. And then we'll close by third, pondering how God cares for his children as well. And also, because I can, I'll take some time um, before that last point of application to just riff quickly on some important reminders that I think we also need to carry away from this text. But let's first see how God threatens our kingdoms. We learn this, I think, in how Herod, this king in Judea, responds to the birth of Jesus, the king of the universe. What happens here? He's threatened and he lashes back, doesn't he? Let's see what Herod does, but first let's remember what we saw last week. Wise men come to Jerusalem. They're following that star. They're looking for the child king. And chapter 2, verse 3 tells us that Herod gets wind of that and gets really nervous. He gathers the religious leaders around him. He learns where Jesus would have been born in Bethlehem according to the book of Micah. He sends those magi down the road to find Jesus. But he asked them first when they first saw that star. Contrary to what he says, Herod doesn't want to worship Jesus. He wants to eliminate him. So he wants to know how old the baby is so that he can be found. Well, he also instructs the magi to return and let them know when they do. Again, so Herod could send men to go kill the child. Now, this was not out of character for this man they called Herod the Great. During his reign of terror, he murdered his wife along with multiple sons. He was deranged, paranoid, cruel. He'd do pretty much anything he could to maintain his power. Well, verse 12 tells us that the wise man here learned in a dream not to comply. And as we come to verse 13, an angel warns Joseph in another dream... Herod is coming after the boy. Flee with him and his mom to Egypt. 
Well, in verse 16, the king learns of the Magi's rebellion and goes off, and he sends executioners down to Bethlehem to kill all the male children there, as well as those in that region who were two years and under. So he takes the, the day given by those men that came from the east, he probably adds on to that a month or two just to be safe, and he wipes out all the village's boys of that age. Bethlehem was a pretty small village. It might have been 10, 20, 30 boys. But needless to say, there were a lot of tears shed in Bethlehem that night. And really for no good reason, because Mary and Joseph were already moving down that road to Egypt. Now, Matthew 2.18 says that this is in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And this is a theme that we're going to see over and over throughout this gospel, how the Old Testament's foundation finds its fulfillment in Christ. Here, Matthew says that Jeremiah 31.15 pointed ahead to this tragic event. Many years before, the people of God were being judged by God. They were being dragged off into exile by their enemies, back with them to Babylon. And down this road that wasn't far from what happened there in Bethlehem. Near the place where the matriarch Rachel had been buried, Jeremiah talks about her weeping from the womb, weeping over her ancestors, led in shackles away from their inheritance. But Matthew here, in, in his gospel, he points to those tears back then. He says that they point ahead to these tears that we're seeing right here around the birth of Jesus. Mothers, again, are weeping for their children, and this time it's a Jewish king and not a Babylonian king that's the main culprit. Well, let's think then about why Herod does this. Why is he so troubled, as verse 3 puts it, even troubled to the point of infanticide? I don't think it's that difficult to grasp. His kingdom is being threatened, right? He's clinging to his reign as hard as he can. He has pagans traveling from... Babylon, following a star, looking for a king. He has Jews there telling him of this king that's coming. His rule is already shaky, really tied to the moods and whims of the Romans above him. And this baby sounds like he may be actually legit. Herod likes being a king. He wants to remain over that kingdom, so he takes action. Well... If we're honest, are we really that much unlike him? You know, we're in this age of social media, and it's, it's easy to take shots at celebrities and leaders. You know, we think, I'd never stoop to that level. Look at that, what that person did. I would never lash out like that. I can say similar things as I hear of, of famous pastors being accused of abuse or falling headfirst into immorality. But I don't have millions of Instagram followers or podcast downloads. I don't have their pressures. I don't have those temptations. I don't have that kind of kingdom that I feel pressured to maintain. But I just know that I'm not that unlike those men as I might think. And that really applies to all of us. Each of us, I think deep down, would like to have more power for sure. And if we tasted it, we would not want to let it go. We can rage at characters like Walter White or Nate the Great, but we're not as different from them as we would like to think. We all want to be kings, and with it, resist the king of kings. Paul Tripp puts it this way. He says, we are kingdom-oriented people. 
We always live in the service of one of two kingdoms. We live in service of the small, personal happiness agenda of the kingdom of self, or we live in service of the huge, origin to destiny agenda of the kingdom of God. When we live for the kingdom of self, our decisions, thoughts, plans, actions, and words are directed by personal desire. We know what we want, where we want it, why we want it, how we want it, and when we want it, and who we would prefer to deliver it. Our relationships are shaped by an infrastructure of subtle expectations and silent demands. We know what we want from people and how to get it from them. We seek to surround ourselves with people who, are, who will serve our kingdom purposes, and we evaluate them not from the perspective of the law of God's kingdom, but from the perspective of the laws of our kingdom. So like Adam and Eve, back in that garden, we want to turn from God's reign and rule over ourselves. We buy this lie from Satan that God can't be trusted, that we can be little gods ourselves, and we strike out on our own, we head straight toward our death, and we generally take other people with us. Apart from God's grace, we spend our lives building up and defending that kingdom of self. And we will declare war on whatever or whomever stands in the way of those idols. Would we act that much different from Herod and Israel in that day? I'm not so sure. The Jews were waiting for God's king, yes. But they wanted a king that would just put them back in power, really. Herod, on the other hand, he had a pretty sweet gig. He liked being king himself. I think here in America, we, the church, just feel like we want to be put back in charge to do things our way, much like Israel when Jesus showed up. And like Herod, I think we as individuals seem to like the thought of Jesus, but we don't want him to shake that much up in our lives. We want to keep things our way, and we see Christ's kingdom as a threat, or we can. But God welcomes us into the safety of his garden. To experience the freedom of his reign. To see his kingdom that is here and is coming as a blessing. What about you and me? Are we committed to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of self? Are we like the wise men here, bowing in worship and finding our joy there? Or are we like Herod, sticking out our chest, willing to even kill to keep control? God threatens our kingdoms. Indeed, he does. But that is so that he can pull us toward his. It's there that we find what is truly life. Friends, receive your king. Welcome his kingdom. Let every heart prepare him room. Well, let's second see how God preserves our king. I think this is the main point here. How God preserves our king. We learn this through how the Lord guides these young parents here in Matthew 2. See what Joseph does first and why he does it. Look at verses 13 and 14. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. So an angel appears to him in a dream. He instructs Joseph to head for Egypt. He informs him about Herod's plan, and the family departs to a place only 90 miles away or so. 
that was filled with millions of Jews that was outside of the jurisdiction of this wicked king. Verse 15 says that, that, that this journey, really the return from it, fulfills Hosea 11.1. 1, when Herod dies and that family returns. That quest that Israel made way, way back out of Egypt through the Red Sea, it pointed ahead to this journey that we see here. That Joseph here, just like those Israelites back then, he had to get up and leave. We've already seen the heart of Matthew here, or the heart of Joseph here in Matthew. Aaron talked about that a few weeks ago. We see more of it here. He's, he is open to the kingdom of God. Joseph here obeys. He turns from the kingdom of self to do what the Lord asks. He truly knows that something special is going on with this child, and there's no way that he can ignore that voice and that dream. But most important here is what God is doing and what's at stake. He's a good father who's taking care of his son. We see that in Joseph, but we see it in a greater reality in our heavenly father and his son Jesus. He has loved Jesus for all eternity, and he is committed to the mission that he gave his son to do. Those words from Hosea 11 read this way. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. So you might not know this, but God's people are often referred to as God's son in the Old Testament. Israel is. But that son sins. Israel fails over and over again. But that nation pointed ahead to this son, Jesus. And he wouldn't disappoint his father. He would do everything he was asked. Twice in Matthew. Once at Christ's baptism in chapter 3, and again at his transfiguration in chapter 17, God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The Lord here, at the beginning, is taking care of his son that he loves so much. But he also just won't let this rescue plan fail. He sends Jesus into the world to save sinners like you and me and to restore the brokenness all around us. And he's not just sent to live, to obey in our place. He's sent in the world to die on our behalf as well. But it just wasn't supposed to happen yet. So the father here, he foils this evil plan at the start so the son can walk down that road for us to the end until he hangs on the cross for our salvation. And rises again to life. So the Lord is determined to free us from our fallen foolish kingdoms. And bring us into the kingdom of his son. So here at the start, God will not let anything get in the way of that. So as I said earlier, we know this. We really don't like people telling us what to do. We default toward living for the kingdom of self. But we really hate people saying that there's something wrong with us. People telling us we need a savior. We don't want to admit that our little kingdoms are so filled with sin and that we're really the problem with what's wrong in the world. But there's freedom for owning who we really are and reaching up and receiving his salvation. And that's ultimately what's at stake here. The Lord is preserving our king and with it our redemption. Herod here dies, but Jesus lives on. And because of that, we can live, too, forever with him. 
God is committed to His Son, and He's committed to our salvation. We talk about a war on Christmas. Well, that's what's going on here. With Herod trying to take out the baby of Jesus. But this is a conflict that goes way, way back. Back to the beginning. Look back with me at Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15. So God has created all we see. He's made men and women as its pinnacle. Adam and Eve rebel. They bring a curse on all God has made. And there, right at the beginning, he makes a promise. We hear the first hint of the gospel. He says this to the serpent here in chapter 3. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So it's maybe a little hard to understand at the first glance, but he's using symbolic language. But you have two offsprings. You have that of the serpent, that's the you there being spoken to. And then you have the offspring of the woman, Eve. So God promises that there's going to be enmity between the ancestors of each. Enmity, that's hostility, that's conflict, warfare. And the Lord promises to the serpent, you will bruise his heel, you'll bite him on his ankle. And there he, he's talking about the cross. And then he says, though, but he'll, he will bruise your head. That seed of the woman will bruise your head. That child of the woman will strike you in the skull. So in other words, there would be battles, many, many battles between these two seeds. The biggest, of course, at the cross. But the good guys, the children of Eve, would ultimately win the war. Jesus would triumph. So right after this, things start with Cain, her son, killing her brother, his brother Abel. And there, there are many other fights that take place along the way. Of course, the one in Egypt being probably the biggest one of all. But God preserves his people. He keeps a remnant. He cares for the offspring of Eve. And most of all, in that, he protects the line of the Messiah. And he keeps them alive again right here. So here, Matthew 2, we see how God threatens our kingdoms. But we also see how he preserves our king. So the battle for Christmas here is won, and so that is so the final war against our sin can be won as well, and we can be saved from death. Now, before I move on to one final point, there's three quick things, important truths that I want us to see in this passage as well, that I just have to say something about. First, we see something about how we should read Scripture, how we should read Scripture. Now, as, as I read those prophecies earlier, that, that could have been confusing. There's something that um, skeptics can latch onto and cry out and protest and say things like this. You know, the Hosea passage is talking about Israel leaving Egypt. The Jeremiah passage is talking about Judah heading into exile. And you can have this reaction. Those authors weren't thinking about Jesus at all. They're not talking about Joseph or Herod. And it might lead you to call into question the truthfulness of Scripture. But here's what we have to understand. We'll eventually get to Matthew 5, 17, and we'll talk about it at length, where Jesus says these words. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. All of Scripture finds its fulfillment in Christ. It all reaches ahead to Him and His ministry. 
So yeah, those passages, they have their context, they have their place back in those Old Testament books, but they still, they reach ahead to truths that are far, far greater, namely, about Christ and his salvation. It's like, on one hand, Matthew is saying this, you know, this, this reminds me, guys, of Israel leaving Egypt back in the day. And it also makes me think of those mothers, you know, that are, are shedding tears back in the exile. But on the other hand, it's, it's much more than that, because Matthew knows that Jesus is the point of the Bible, that all of history finds its fulfillment in him, and that's how we have to read our Bibles as well. Second, we see something about how we should confront sins, how we should confront sins. So here's another thing that I think we can't miss in this passage. First of all, in a nation where... We're arguing about immigration and how to care for refugees. You literally have Jesus and his parents fleeing for their lives to another land. Did you catch that? And second, in a country where thousands of abortions are performed each day, and it's being debated in the Supreme Court even this week, you see babies being killed here in this text. The father protects his son from infanticide by turning his family into refugees. And church, we have to be able to speak the truth about both of those issues. There's this ministry, this organization that I really appreciate a lot today. It's called the AND Campaign. And they hold this belief that I also share that the church really can't find its home on either the right or left. We can't get too comfortable as either Republicans or Democrats. And we have to speak the truth to power on both of those sides. They say we must have compassion and conviction. Their president, Justin Gibney, recently said this. Being conservative or progressive on every single issue is intellectually lazy and unfaithful. Critique and pushback on these flawed ideologies. Make conservatism sympathize and pursue racial justice. Make progressivism acknowledge absolute truth in the sanctity of life. Those are good words. We have to speak truth to both sides, declaring his kingdom with conviction. Hear me. We should make both conservatives and progressives uncomfortable in general, but maybe even a little bit at the Christmas dinner table here in a week or two. But we have to do it with grace, with compassion, knowing that we every bit as much need the king, that we're sinners as well. Third, see something about how we should approach suffering. So here, in this passage, we see unspeakable pain. Mothers weeping over their lost sons, alongside all this language about fulfillment. And that may be tough for you to reconcile. And I, I understand. You may read that and think, so you're telling me that God is that much in control even over this kind of suffering? And you may be tempted to bristle and rebel. But I want you to think about the alternative. Most of you know over the past couple of years, my wife has been battling breast cancer. That's been during a global pandemic where now 750,000 people have died just here in America. Just heard of a, a friend who lost her dad, her dad just last night. We've chosen as a family and as a church to believe and remind ourselves of three truths. That God is good, 
God is in control, and God is with us. Somehow, in a way that we cannot understand, God is king, and he is ruling over all of this. As David Pallison once put it, God's hand is intimately mixed up in our trouble. Doesn't that truth bring so much comfort? As we look around at the sin in our world, we have to trust that God is still in control. As that suffering comes into your life, you have to fight to believe the same thing. But if you reject that, here's what you've got. God's hand is far away from your pain. And there's really no purpose in it all. And with that, you also have no hope. Our body's white blood cell counts going up and down, or, or people eating bats in a market way over east. No one behind it, no one in control of it, just chance, randomness. Is that really what we want in the fiery trials that we face? Really? Well, moving on, sadly today, many are choosing to go in that direction. Christians are deciding to just walk away to set it all ablaze. There's a lot of talk, and you may have heard about deconstruction as of late. People are saying, I just can't believe in the virgin birth anymore, or what the church says about sex and marriage, or that Jesus is the one savior of the world, and they're turning their backs. But you might respond, and trust me, I get this. There are good reasons why people are doing this, because of the ways people are distorting and destroying our faith. Christian hip-hop artist Kevin Burgess, better known as KB, shared this on Twitter recently, commenting on this, this idea of, of deconstruction, deconversion. He says, I've watched the surge of people I love walk away from Jesus in the last few years. Just about zero had been lured away by Marxism, liberalism, or atheism. Almost all have shipwrecked over the politicizing of Christianity and their church's apathy, hostility regarding injustice. I've seen the same thing, and trust me. And I get the doubts, so don't hear me judging that. What I want you to hear me saying is, some deconstruction of what American Christianity has become needs to happen. But please don't throw this baby here and this passage out with that nasty bathwater. If you're on the verge of doing that, I would beg you to just step back, take a deep breath, and realize that there has been a war on Christmas that went back to the very beginning. There have been many distortions throughout the years. Our faith has been used for political ends before, and it has survived. So don't just give up. Quite yet? No. That's the main reminder that I want you to hear, but I also want you to consider honestly whether you might just be wanting to pursue your own kingdom too and not his. But some of you need to hear something very different from that. Last week I quoted Rich Villadas, and I really love his writing. You should check out his book, The Deeply Formed Life. If you haven't yet, it's so good. But a few days ago I saw him post these words. This holiday season, keep Christ in Christians. Wow. In this day, when so many people are claiming the name of Jesus and are behaving badly, Satan is no doubt grinning from ear to ear. And he's, he's thinking, yeah, I'm winning this battle here. I've still got time. I can make a comeback. 
Perhaps in trying to win this war on Christmas and attempting to defeat the culture around us, we're playing right into our enemy's hands. You know, fretting about how we might lose, you know, not trusting our Father and King, going off on those we're supposed to reach. Maybe that's the real war on Christmas today, getting us to look less like the baby in the manger and more like Herod that we see here. Maybe this so-called war has more to do with our earthly kingdoms being threatened than by disrespecting our king. To you, I make this appeal. Turn from your kingdom and those of this world. Give your life to his. Ask him to renew you by the fruit of his spirit. Soak yourself not just in the truth of Jesus, but in the grace of our Lord as well. So anyway, some people today are trying to deconstruct their faith. Others, I think, are trying to politicize it. And both parties are, are arguing about who started the fire. But the living waters of Jesus, with equal parts conviction and compassion, would surely bring us back together and would douse those flames. I want to turn to my last point. So we've zoomed in to the battle that's happening in this passage. We've zoomed out to see its place in this cosmic war. God protects and preserves his son and with it our salvation. But I want you to hear something else. He, he's also keeping us safe. Third, see how God cares for his children. The war may have been won through Christ's death on the cross, but the battles still keep happening until the day when he comes back in glory. Until that day, what 1 Peter 5 says needs to be heard. And we need to hear it with a, an appropriate sense of fear. 1 Peter 5a. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Just, just think about that. A lot of you are going to drive home and watch football and... and and watch the quarterback running for his life while these big, burly guys try to destroy him on camera. Satan is pursuing us. He, he's prowling. He wants to take us out. He still rages. The danger there is real, but our Lord tells us to stay strong, realizing that others are with us in this. And it's always happened for believers through all generations. Verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And he gives us this promise. He will not let us go, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Church, if he can protect that baby in that house in Israel... He can also protect us, the children of God. It doesn't mean that we won't necessarily lose our lives. Sickness may end up overtaking us. Persecution lead, could lead to our death. But it does mean that he'll preserve our souls until that resurrection day when our bodies are made whole again. If we are truly his, he'll keep us safe. Just as he protected his son here, he will protect us, his sons, his daughters. We are the new Israel. We are his people, the church of the living God. We can bank on that no matter how hot the flames may get. Until that day, we just can't forget God's preserving a remnant, a people for his name. 
We don't have to worry about losing Christmas. No. Our Father is committed to Christmas and to Christianity every bit as much as He was His Son way back then, protecting Him and the redemption that He came to bring. Our God won the battle that we see here for Christmas back then. He will in no way lose this war. Just like He defeated those enemies back then, He'll triumph over them once and for all. Just as He safeguarded His Son, He'll care for us, His children, as well. If He saved us, He'll keep us. We keep on hanging on to Him with the knowledge that it's ultimately Him who's hanging on to us. So we can relax and rest in His arms. Let's pray. Father, it brings comfort to know that it's, it's not up to us. If we're honest, we're weak. Um, we're foolish in so many ways. I know I am. It's hard to just keep the goals we set for the day um, to um, not sin for five minutes. Um, it's not up to us, Lord. Um, we're thankful that you are committed to redeem your people and that you're committed to hold us to the end. And I just pray, Lord, we would be encouraged um, by that today, Lord, that um, we would reach out to you and um, just receive um, this amazing gift that you've given, Lord, in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.